Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Rowinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. Hi, I'm Sophie Smith from Richmond in the UK, and you're listening to my favourite podcast, The Tennis Podcast. Bless you, Sophie. Thank you very much. What a lovely intro here on the Tennis Podcast on this fine Monday afternoon. Catherine Whittaker's here. Hello, Catherine. Hello, David. It's not fine in Putney. Isn't it? It's very, very windy. <clears throat> it's glorious here in Solid not, not, that doing, it, not that it's in any way relevant to my life, what the weather is like uh, beyond these four walls. But Got the one, uh, got the one window there, I see. And, uh, you know, yeah. that's being used. Yeah. Window one, two what's left of the world ah uh. uh, an uplifting note to begin on you're welcome matt cheers up i'm afraid it's cold and windy here as well <laughs> <laughs> solihull is the uk's sweet spot apparently today uh, yeah yeah we we've been talking today uh solihull sutton coldfield stratford upon avon simon and me today about whether we are going to be able to get out on a court after wednesday after some of the lockdown rules were eased announced to last night um but uh i'm thinking i don't think it's a very good idea because i might i might lose is one and um and secondly is it sensible really to be you know, sharing tennis balls and all that sort of thing. I don't know whether it's a good idea. Um, well, apparently there's going to be guidance, isn't there, on how you can do socially distanced sport and in particular tennis. But the prospect of having to label tennis balls with your initials and make sure you only touch ones with your initials on it sounds like an anxiety dream to me. And, and I'm, I'm going to get that wrong, I... I love tennis, but I'm not sure I love tennis enough to endure those conditions in order to play. Okay, well, I'm playing with my kids anyway. I'm definitely going to beat them and I won't catch anything. Yeah, you can play with, you're allowed to play with people from your household from Wednesday, I think, provided you can find a facility that's open uh, and you don't have to travel too far to get there. (laughs) 
or touch many things when you're there or okay. see any other people. It's all extremely straightforward. I can provide you with a, a really helpful graph, <laughs> uh, if you like, <laughs> to, <laughs> to yeah. I- I- illuminate exactly uh, what you are and aren't allowed to do. Yeah, there, there, there's still no live tennis, folks, but we're still doing the tennis podcast. There's kind of those live exhibition events popping up all around the place. I uh, can't say I've tuned into any of those yet. I don't know whether you have. Anybody? No? I watched about a minute of okay. something that made me feel depressed and then uh, quickly tuned out. Yeah. Yeah, it really made me realise how much I need sort of fans and the storylines and the tournaments to in you know to enjoy tennis that's what i follow when i follow tennis i don't follow people hitting a tennis ball necessarily it's it's all part of the bigger picture which which i follow so i'm I'm sure some people will have found it entertaining and would have watched it but uh not for me yeah not for me maybe we're not the purists we thought we were but i mean it's the same reason why we watch packed stadiums with elite players that we know things about and are engaged with rather than just going down the local park and watching uh, Sarah and Joanna um, have a hit and giggle. No offence, Sarah and Joanna. If it were just, you know, about watching a tennis ball be struck back and forth, then we'd enjoy that as much as we would, you know, watching the US Open final. So I'm sure what's uh, being laid on at the moment is slightly better than Sarah and Joanna but it it wasn't an enticing prospect for me it just reminds me what we're missing uh what wider point the US Open have said that they're not prepared to play behind closed doors or pretty much they've said that Roland Garros has said the opposite they are prepared to do whatever it takes really to get this thing played a grand slam behind closed doors or nothing at all what you're having for the rest of the year? Well, we've never seen it before, so we don't. We don't. We're, we're guessing how we're going to feel about it here. My guess is that I would prefer nothing at all for very similar reasons. I think it would just make me feel really, really depressed and remind me of all the things <clears throat> we're missing. Um, but I think it would. It would be very apparent very very quickly let's say the French Open went ahead in September behind closed doors I think within three minutes of the first match on Philippe Chatrier we'd know whether it was going to work or not it would be either be that eerie feeling of oh this is awful and depressing and we've got to do another 15 days of this um or or we'll go you know what this is all right it's not it's not the dream but it's all right and I'm glad this is happening and it's it's just it's such a bizarre concept in the abstract that it's quite difficult to to imagine how we'll all feel. I, I heard feel. them talking about behind closed doors football matches. There was there were matches played, I think, in South Korea last week, and the people I heard said that they they expected to hate it, and they actually thought it was all right. They they got it, used to it. Mm. Um, my my feeling is the what my I know what you mean. I totally know what you mean about whether you'd know immediately or not. Do you not think you, your mind, your eye, your ear would adjust to it as it, as it went along? And you might just kind of get used to it. But I don't know if I want to. I think my mind might resist that. I don't know. Maybe I would. As I say, it's so difficult to, to conceptualise. Maybe. 
but the prospect of it makes my heart sink so much that that's not a feeling I want. I want. <laughs> it's funny because I would take football behind closed doors broadcast on TV. I think I would. I would like that. I would like to watch that. But the prospect of tennis behind closed doors, I don't know. Something about it makes me a bit more uneasy. I don't know whether it's because I can't imagine a situation where they would be playing the French Open, say, behind closed doors, and everyone would still be allowed to travel to it. Like, are all the players going to be able to travel to a hypothetical French Open in September behind closed doors? Probably not. So, therefore, I don't really want the French Open at all if it's not the French Open with everyone in it who should be in it. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the the, the debate could well end up being academic, I think, because the the time at which it will be either allowable or acceptable or people will feel comfortable with gathering in large groups will probably be a very similar time that people feel um, comfortable travelling mm. internationally and borders will... will um, will open freely again. So I, I suspect the the debate could end up being largely redundant. And this is all just sort of knee-jerk panic. When can we have sport again? When can we have sport again? Which obviously I I understand, but um, it could be academic in the scheme of things. Craig Tiley, uh, Australian Open tournament director, was saying uh, a couple of days ago, I saw an interview with him, saying that they are planning for an Australian Open still. Um, they, they're full steam ahead, but you know the expectation is that it is going to be Australian and New Zealand fans only in the stands if they, if they have that, and that players will have to go through a quarantine period of a couple of weeks in the country in order to, to ensure that they are free of any virus and, and they'll have all sorts of conditions and... Um, mitigations involved in order to to keep everybody safe but he also said that it might not happen at all so uh we'll wait and see oh let's get jolly shall we and go back let's in go time back to 2012 when things were better <laughs> yeah i went fully back to 2012 yesterday i watched my olympics dvd oh how was that i mean utterly glorious how many times did you cry i cried three times in dvd one uh, and there were five. I only watched two yesterday. Uh, yeah, I cried at, um, I've already re-forgotten his name, the the bloke that won that shooting gold medal. Um, yeah, I cried at that. Uh, cried at Andy Murray, obviously. Um, cried at Chad, Le- do you remember Chad LeClos' dad? Yes. Anyway. I know I digress, okay. but right. 2012 was, well, that was the uh, first, uh, a stellar the first, year. The first item on my 2012 list was the Summer Olympics were held in London. So Catherine's ruined that one. Uh, the second one was Barack Obama was elected for a second term. And the third one, she's also ruined. Andy Murray won his first Grand Slam title. Um, well, no, I didn't. I talked it. about him winning the Olympics. Oh, okay. Well, he also won his first Grand Slam title. Mm. And uh, so that was 2012. I had... I had forgotten exactly how one-sided that Olympic final was. It was that it was, was the a Olympic demolition final really. against Federer when I mean look, Murray was brilliant that day. He he was saying actually in an interview or maybe it was in his chat with with I can't remember what what I heard him say time. One how of the windy many Instagram was. lives. Yeah. Yes, it was and it had rained very heavily that 
morning um, and there was some speculation that they would play with the reef closed and debate about who that would favour because obviously sort of the, the reflex is to say reef closed always favours Federer but um, Andy Murray's got a great record under the Wimbledon reef, doesn't he? Um, but then they opened it just before the match but it was breezy, definitely and Federer looked sort of irritable and lacking in... Lacking in fight, really. Lacking in spark. How long was that match against Del yeah. Potro he'd played the day before? That was a little mm. assist to Del Potro, I think. Not to take anything away mm. from Murray, who was just awesome in that final. But I think it was 1917, third set, Federer Del Potro. The, was it right. the day before? I think it might have been just the day before, maybe two days before. But anyway. I think two days before. Anyway, yeah. Federer was, was pretty knackered, I think, for that final. He did a really good job, Murray, of... Um, I, I felt like if Federer had found a spark and got on a roll, he could have energised himself. Murray did a really good job of just keeping him down and not giving him any sniff at all. And goodness me, he must have been nervous. So, so stressed and tense. of such a release of emotions after, after he won. It was... It was very emotional. I'm going to just uh, inhabit the summer of 2012, I think, from every evening from now to the end of lockdown. Okay. Slash you might be waiting, end of the year. A while. Um, yeah. Uh, we were supposed to be doing Madrid relived, but we've started on the Olympics relived as early, early. <laughs> we'll be doing it again. You can rest assured we will be. Uh, but yeah, it was supposed to be Madrid final weekend just gone. And obviously it hasn't been played, but we're going back in time anyway. Uh, so this is uh, the year, if you take a look at our Instagram or Twitter pages where uh, my little son was a newborn and he's uh, resting on my shoulder uh, and he's the size of, of my palm uh, and now he's a, a bit different, uh, galloping around the football field, etc. And if his um, cameos in our um, video chat string, watch-alongs are anything to go by, he has, he's got your number, David. <laughs> Who hasn't? Uh, yeah. He certainly has. Um, so, yeah, that was 2012. Catherine had a short hairstyle. Matt looked similar, younger, but that's about it, I'd say. Is that fair? Yeah, that is fair. That uh, photo was actually taken in Madrid, the one on our Instagram really? page. Yes, it was all all relevant. What? Which school were you in then? Which year? Uh, lower sixth. At school, lower lower six. I don't, I don't really know what that means, Catherine. That's, what were you doing? That's year, year twelve. 12. Uh, in that particular photo, I was in Australia visiting my parents just before Christmas. It was when they lived out there. We were at the Lone Pine Koala Sanctuary. Ah, okay, happy days. Uh, and 2012 in Madrid was the year that they used blue clay, the one and only year. And in Catherine's wonderful notes that we have here in front Dave, of me. David's going to be obsequious about my notes now <laughs> yeah. forevermore. No one will ever know the truth And I'll never, I'll never trust your compliments, <laughs> compliments of my notes now, David. I, I, I feel like I should post them. They're so well set out. I mean, Matt, you've, you've got a bit of a run for your money here, I'm telling you. Um, I'll just read a couple of little highlights. Uh, it says, The one and only year that the tournament was staged on innovative and controversial blue clay, tournament owner Jon Tyriak wanted to make the sport more interesting on the screen. 
and he did and uh, it's true uh it was it was one of those things wasn't it the the look of the the blue clay as opposed to just red clay everywhere you had the green clay at that one tournament in charleston um, but that always looked gray on the court this was very very difficult different as a as a visual um before we get on to talk about it in any further detail let's hear from a player who played on it that year and reached the semi-finals yanko tipsarovic is a man that uh, matt spoke to last week and uh, he was good enough to have a chat with us here on the tennis podcast about what it was like to play on blue clay and first of all matt asked him what it was what his reaction was when he first heard about the idea i think for everybody including myself the initial emotion or the initial thought when I heard that the clay will be blue was not all positive because I can tell you that 70, 80, 90% of the players were thinking, were thinking the same. How the hell are we going to play on red clay and then one tournament on blue and then continuing the fall, the, the I think it was Rome after that and then Geneva and then French Open on red. Clay. So the initial emotion was not all good. But then once I heard more about it, that the only difference would be the visual aspect and that it would be exactly the same like the red clay, I kind of eased up. This is all about, this. these are all my emotions and thoughts before I came to Madrid. So your initial concern was that it would play differently to the red clay? The initial concern was not so much that it would play differently because Rome clay is not the same like Monte Carlo and Madrid is not the same like French Open. Uh, clay has, uh, hardcore has the benefit that generally if you create the same hardcore, the speed is everywhere the same and then it's being determined by balls and weather conditions. Clay is very much different from tournament to tournament. So for me, it was not so much the feel if it's faster or slower or higher bouncing. It was more the visual aspect that all my life we are playing on red clay and then just in the middle of the clay season, they dropped this bomb on us that you will play on blue clay. It was more of a, of a visual concern rather than having a concern that it's going to be faster or slower. Okay, that's interesting because I think the, one of the primary reasons for changing it to blue was to improve the visuals for spectators and fans so that they could see the ball perhaps better on the tv was that what you were told yes it was i mean jon tiriak is one of the most successful businessmen alive he is uh, very successful in the world of tennis so uh, doing things like this is completely natural and normal for him you mentioned that it would be that the fans and the spectators see the ball better. Now, I blue is a great color for tennis. You see that a lot of hard courts are actually blue. So, but it was just more of a concern. Why are they dropping this bomb on us right now in the middle of the clay court season? Mm. Do you think tennis players in general are quite resistant to that kind of change? Something going against the status quo? I think the younger generation is not. The older generation was. And uh, I am, my, um, personally, myself, I am all for change. I think tennis and all the other sports, they need to evolve. 
it's it's uh, normal for any sport that we need to involve to evolve i apologize but uh, i think the older generations are very resistant to change the younger generations not so much which is a very good thing so if we skip forward to the tournament could you give us an insight into what it was like to play on <sighs> i uh, liked it immediately because i saw that it was really fast like really really fast and uh, clay is not my favorite surface and i thought wow i can play my aggressive tennis here and um, uh, all the practice or most of the practice matches i believe even twice with rafa that i practiced on i won i started feeling really really good because i saw that there is no plan b you don't have an option to defend on this clay, which later on caused issues with most of the players because not because of the color, but because how much how slippery was the surface, where you didn't have an option to run left, right, left, right, left, right, and still feel comfortable in doing so. So the fact that it was slippery hindered defensive players, and that and that kind of is shown by who did well that tournament. People like Burdick, Del Potro, Federer, yourself. You saw, uh, I mean that, and you immediately saw the, that Rafa didn't like it, Novak didn't like it. I think they were even threatening not to compete next year if the clay if it stays mm. the same, because they were saying that it's not safe. Uh, Mara, like all of the players, which main. Not saying Rafa and Novak are defensive players, but this is a huge weapon in their arsenal in defense. And uh, players, and I'm not putting myself in the category of uh, the other three, or even Novak or Rafa, of course, but players which play more aggressive style of tennis liked because there was not a lot of defense going on. You mentioned there Nadal and Novak Djokovic being quite critical of it. I think Djokovic suggested that he needed football boots with studs on to be able to move on it because it was so slippery. And Nadal talked about, you know, what's next, blue grass. Um, how much was it on their mind that week? It was a lot on their mind. I remember that I was practicing with Rafa quite often because I came earlier to prepare. And I remember every single practice he was shaking his head and saying that he doesn't like it, which is really not normal for Rafa. Wherever you put Rafa, he plays and gives his best and doesn't really complain about anything. I remember this week he was really, uh, if I can use the word, bitching about the surface and how slow, uh, how slippery it was. And to his uh, point, to his credit, he had a point. It was really slippery. You basically could not defend. You could not change the re- direction being at ease, knowing that you're not going to whatever slide or pull a groin or something like that. But some of the players adapted and some of them not. And you beat Novak Djokovic that week. What are your memories of that match? And how how much of a factor was the surface in that victory? This might sound silly. I'm obviously very proud to beat Novak, but the victory that I'm most proud of is that I beat Gilles Simon in the round before, okay. where my score against him up until that point, was 0-5 without me ever winning a set. (laughs) So, (laughs) And you know Gilles is a very defensive style of player. So 
this is also proof that uh, I loved the surface to be the guy that I never beaten, never won a set actually in five meetings and then beat him in straight sets, you know, really meant a lot to me that I can, you know, really do some damage. I think, uh, uh, the victory against Novak is obviously, I will remember it for the rest of my life. Uh, I feel same like Rafa, his approach was not the best. He's a close friend of mine, so we spoke about this many times. Mm-hmm. He really didn't like the clay. He was saying that he's not going to come back next year if it stays like this. So from the very beginning, even though I believe he did his best, his attitude was not the best towards the whole tournament. Like, uh, But, uh, you know, a win is a win, and I am very happy that I got it. Do you think Novak was worried about getting injured on the surface or worried about it disrupting his preparation for the French Open? I think it's more the first thing. I think he was more worried that he would get injured. You see that defense is a huge part of Novak's game, and direction change, he's, I think, the best. I mean, I don't think I know he's the best that ever lived. So if you take this away from him and he wants to compete and win, he has to do this while th- while thinking in the same time, is it safe for me to change direction how I normally do it on clay? And when you, you don't have that option, being afraid that you will potentially get injured, this is why he was worried and his attitude was not the best. And Federer won the tournament that week and he beat you in the semifinals, I think. Um why do you think he was able to thrive? Was it his mindset or was it because the surface actually suited his game? I think it's both. I think he sees the opportunity to, and we know that Roger is one of the most, if not the most aggressive tennis players that ever lived and ever played. He, His variety of shots in his offensive arsenal was incredible. Direction change, rhythm change, High spins, fast balls, slices, drop shots, serves and serve and volley. He just pulled out everything that he had in this in his arsenal during this week, which is uh, why I believe he was able to win because his style of play was completely like, completely aggressive with a lot of rhythm changes. And if you don't feel stability under your legs this is really tough to deal with especially if you're as good as Roger is Mm. the surface was obviously ditched and never used again how did you feel about it you've you've spoken about how you actually quite like the surface but did you think it was the right decision to ditch it or do you think they should have persevered and tried to improve it um I think, if you ask me personally, I would love to play on on, on uh, blue clay next uh, the following season. But from what I heard, many many more players disliked it than the amount of players that liked it. I think Rafa even joined Novak and saying, "I'm not going to play in my home country if the clay stays blue." So then they had no choice. Mm. But the real problem was. I believe that from what I heard, and due to injury, I skipped Madrid the previous year. I heard that there was too much clay. And then because of this, numerous holes on center courts were being created. So the bounces were terrible. So then the following year, the slippery part had nothing to do with the color of, of clay. It had to do that they, that they didn't put enough clay on the court. So because of that, the court was so slippery. 
This is what I heard. And they were really trying to, to say that they will put more clay the following year and it will be exactly the same, but the top guys didn't want to hear about it, so they had no other option but to change it. So do you think that that is significant, the fact that it was the top players speaking out against it? Is that an example of, of the kind of power that those players wield? I think in any sport, if whatever, nine or eight out of top 10 or 80 out of top 100 players don't like it, any organization, whether if it's the NBA or NFL, whatever, they will change it. Especially if it's something new. Like if they would come and say, we don't like the grass at Wimbledon, Wimbledon might, might say, sorry, this is what we got. But if Wimbledon suddenly changes to blue clay, to blue grass, like whoever said that, you, you said it a few minutes ago, and like 80 of the top 100 players say we don't like it, I promise you Wimbledon will change it back. So blue clay, first of all, we watched the final yesterday, all three of us, between Roger Federer and Thomas Burdick. When you rewatched it, what was your view of the actual surface eight years on? Um, it it looked completely bizarre for about three minutes. I was like, this is from what well, looked like the surface of the moon, didn't it? It was very, very arresting. But then I very quickly got used to it and really, really enjoyed it. I realised there are separate concerns from the players, which we'll come on to. But I think if the goal was to make the sport more interesting on the screen, make the ball easier to to pick out, um, create quite an exciting brand of clay court tennis, really, almost a sort of hybrid type surface, mission accomplished. Now, obviously, there are detracting factors that we'll come on to, but in terms of those aims, I think they were achieved. It was a really enjoyable watch for me. Mm. Matt? Yeah, same. Um, I've I've always looked back on blue clay quite fondly in terms of I remember liking it at the time and I liked it yesterday when we watched. I, I think it really does work on TV. You can actually see where the ball bounces on the court, which you can kind of see on red clay, but not, not as easy as you could on the blue, which I think is quite a cool addition. Um, I think the point you make, Catherine, is the main one that there's a discrepancy here in reaction between probably fan reaction and pundit reaction because it did give us something to talk about it did give us something different in a clay court swing where the visual is very much the same for three months basically with the with the red clay it did give a different brand of tennis it it promoted attacking tennis which personally is probably my favorite style of tennis to watch but as as we know, the players were far less keen on it. Um, but yeah, just as an experiment, it was fun. But as we will hear, unfortunately, a failed one, but not necessarily because of it, the fact that it was blue. What, what do you think of what Yanko was saying there about the player response? Because, I mean, we, we've got some quotes here. Nadal said afterwards, if things continue, there will be one less tournament in my calendar, i.e. if they continue with blue clay. Djokovic said, I want to forget this week as soon as possible and move on to the real clay courts. Here, you can't predict the ball bounce or the movement. They can do whatever they want, but I won't be here next year if this clay stays. And Yank has made it very clear that those were the reasons 
basically why this tournament stopped using blue clay. They were back to red clay the next year. It, it's it's quite jarring to see a couple of players speak out like that and everything changes. Yeah, they. I mean, Nadal, obviously others spoke out against it, but Nadal and Djokovic really threw their weight around after that tournament to make sure it never happened again. And the ATP forced the tournament to change back to red clay because Jan Tyriak very openly said he would have stuck with the blue clay. He he liked it. He was a success. They were forced into the 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 reversion uh, uh, by the then uh, chief executive of the ATP, um, Brad Druitt. He said... Uh, that the blue clay courts will not be allowed next year, regardless of colour. We must first ensure that the courts are safe and fair for the players. Um, which is an interesting one, because as much as there were hefty complaints about um, how difficult it was to move on the surface, how um, dangerous uh, that accusation was throw- thrown around a lot. The the surface was, it was slippery. It was compared to, to marble. There were no injuries in the week. There were no retirements. There were no withdrawals, no, no notable injuries. Now, that might be because it was such a challenging surface. Players were having to be so cautious with their movement um, in order to, to prevent those injuries. That, of course, could be a factor. But, you know, that... That is worth bearing in mind, I think. And yeah, it's. I know Yanko says in, in that interview that the players weren't consulted. Well, my understanding is that the player council were consulted. I don't think, certainly Nadal and Djokovic, I don't think were on it at the time. Um, Eric Buterak was the president of the player council and there were some quotes from him saying that the player council opposed it. Um, but the tournament council, obviously, uh, they were in favour of it and the ATP um, pushed ahead with it for obviously just for that year only. So, so the player council were consulted and did, did have a voice, just that voice was ignored um, and, and therein lies the fundamental um, opposition at the heart of that uh, organisation. What I find really interesting and it's something Janko Tipzarovic touched on was how Nadal and Djokovic allowed it to really get to them and affect their performance that week. Like, obviously, it didn't suit them, the surface. It didn't suit their game styles. They were the more defensive players or players who rely on their defence probably more than some of the players who flourished that week. But so often, what they're so good at is adapting and overcoming little bits of adversity and not letting it affect them. So... That was kind of rare to see them get so upset about something. And also, it kind of made me feel like it was an indicator of the power that they do have because basically they were able to say, we don't want this, and the ATP banned it. Well, what if they spoke out on more issues that didn't kind of personally just affect them? If they used that power that they have more often... Could, could yep. there not be more change to come about in tennis? Why did nobody speak out against the use of uh, models as ball girls? I mean, of the of the two uh, innovations that that tournament yeah. has introduced, one is significantly more offensive and worthy of uh, of criticism than the other for me. Um, and yet, I, I never heard any uh, players speaking out against that. I think it's it sounds to me like. And even those harshly critical of the surface, 
there's nothing intrinsically wrong with blue clay as a surface. What they were objecting to was the change and the fact that it was a single tournament in the middle of a swing of tournaments on a different surface and it wasn't fair to expect them to be able to play on that surface for one week and one week only. They were Um, putting the slipperiness down to the colour, weren't they? Whereas actually... When you listen to what Tipsarad said there and you listen to what the organisers said, the actual colour of the thing, although they removed the pigment and they did one or two things to it, it was actually to do with almost overcompensating from the previous year in terms of the top dressing of the actual surface that they'd got the, the, the amount Yeah, wrong. so basically the courts at Madrid, since it changed to clay, had always been a little bit of a mess a little bit substandard peaking in 2011 when there were the holes on the court and then they changed it to blue and it wasn't the blueness that made the court slippery as you said because there's a video on the madrid open youtube page where it's the the guy who laid the blue clay court was the same guy who's laid the courts at roland garros for 20 years and he says there's no reason why the blue clay should be any different to a red clay surface the players can expect the same feeling the same quality the same bounce the same bounce the ball everything but it was kind of the just the preparation of the court that led to the problem rather than the blueness itself it also raises the question of what is the threshold of significance of or adjustment of surface change that requires a <clears throat> a player council and tournament council vote and ATP approval and subsequently ATP instruction to to revert back to how it was before. If if Queens started using a different type of grass, um, a different type of seed for their tournament, uh, presumably that wouldn't be voted on by the ATP. And it, that wouldn't be something that the ATP could order Queens to, to do differently. But so, did, was this not, a, in the end, a, a business decision by the tournament to think, you know what, we cannot do without those two players and therefore we're just going to change? Well, I, I read to you um, <clears throat> Brad Jurett's statement. The ATP, after careful consideration, I've decided that blue clay courts will not be allowed next year. Mm. So maybe the tournament... Maybe the tournament would have decided that anyway due to the the force of of what Nadal and Djokovic were saying but yeah their their hand their hand was forced either way well, worth worth also pointing out that it is a combined event Serena Williams won the women's event beating Victoria Azarenka in the final and she appeared to have no problems with it or, I mean I suppose you would say she would she wouldn't she said I haven't noticed a difference between the blue and the red clay I think it's the same it's just you don't get as dirty um, she won the title easily in the in the final. Apparently, didn't have any say. Or again, like I say, as it being a business decision, Brad Druitt doesn't des- decide what the women can play on. So ultimately, the tournament has to make that call. Uh, you would think across the board in order to to, to put it into effect both sides. Um, I suppose if if one if the men have said they're not going to play on it, then you it it makes it very difficult for you to go ahead. But yeah, I mean it's in these times of players calling for mergers, it's another example of um, how um, some thought will have to be put into that sort of thing in the future. Um, just on the final itself, Federer won it, but it was 
he he came from a set down. He won both sets two and three. He was a break up and he lost the break and he ended up edging both of them seven five. Thomas Burdick was fantastic for the first set, wasn't he? Yeah, as as you said when we were watching David, he was totally unfazed by what Federer was bringing to that court. He was just getting in the position to hit the ball big, tee off and hit winners, essentially. And he looked so calm, so relaxed. In many ways, the match kind of ended up as a bit of a microcosm for his whole career. If you think, you know, he was able to cause a member of the big three some damage. He was a threat to them, but ultimately he ended up losing and he lost because... Federer had a little bit more in his game. He eventually figured out the surface a bit more, got Burdick off balance, got him moving. And also he had the nerve at the end of the sets. Thomas Burdick gave the second set away with a double fault. He got he got back level, as you said, in the third and then gave it away again. And it was, it was kind of the story of his career, really. A, a great match, a great performance, but ultimately beaten by, by one of the greats. Yeah, lovely, sweet ball striking when in position, but when manoeuvred out of position, can look a bit awkward. He's great when the going is good. Mm. When things are unstressful and nice and clean, nobody hits the ball crisper than Thomas Burdick. And if the conditions are settled and everything's fine, he's brilliant. And then if you just rattle him a bit, if you drag him into territory he doesn't want to be in, whether that's outside of the, the tram lines or in the context of a match, if you can just make it a bit of a dirty match where you have to get sweaty and messy and, and scrap and fight, I think they've got him. Historically, he had a period where he used to beat Federer quite a lot, but if you saw there in that three-set match, I remember when he made that terrible mistake against Andy Murray of, of of getting personal with him on the court in that match at the Australian Open. He got in Murray's kitchen and Murray <laughs> was just like, yeah, come on in. Scrambled his eggs, except didn't <laughs> scramble his eggs. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, egg on his face. <laughs> I think in 2012, <laughs> we were still in the period where Burdick was a threat at least. And I enjoyed watching that first set of Burdick taking it to Federer. I think as as his career went on, maybe three or four years later, he didn't even do that against against those players. And you knew as soon as the match was starting that he, Burdick was going to lose. I think as the losses piled up against them, he lost all sorts of belief that he could actually threaten them. Whereas in this period in 2012, at least he was still a threat. He tended to lose, but he made a good match of it, at least. Yeah, the baggage hadn't um, <clears throat> accumulated mm. too badly at this stage. But w when he's in position, or when he was used to be in position and could could hit the ball cleanly, the sound the ball made off the racket, this the sweetness of the hit um, from Burdick was was pretty wonderful. It was. Uh, Roger Federer went on, as we speak, speaking about there, to reach the Olympic final, won Wimbledon, had a had a really good year overall. Um, but yeah, it was a, it was a, it was some year actually that blue clay year. And uh, I mean, t t 2012 was kind of the the ultimate big four year, wasn't it? They won <clears throat> they won a slam each. Um, were they all four of them in? 
the it was Murray who was the French Open final that year, Nadal and Djokovic. Yeah, but the Australian Open semis were all four of them. Were all four of them? Yeah, so all four finals were the two of the big four against one another. It, it was just a, it was an epic year, wasn't it? And I think just to pick up on Federer in that final, I think a lot of what Tipsarovic said played out with what we saw the way that Federer flourished on that surface because as opposed to Nadal and Djokovic he was more positive about it okay it suited his game style more than it did theirs because of the variety of the shots he has there was a there was a point in the final against Burdick where he hit a winner with a slice backhand that just wrong-footed Burdick and no one else has, has kind of got that shot in their arsenal he was able to deploy them and deploy them under pressure but also his mindset was better. He didn't he didn't necessarily like the surface, but he accepted it. He said it's tough to move. And I think the next year he was actually quite pleased. It, it changed back, even though he won it on the blue clay. But you just get on with it and you make the best of it. And that's, su- that's such a good mindset to have. I would love to see like a, a blind testing. I mean, this will obviously never happen because, um, well, there is a blind tennis, isn't there? But it's a completely different sport. Yeah. Um, a a blind testing of whether they could actually tell if it was blue clay or red <laughs> clay, like when uh, like Marmite Cliff and Vegemite. Ri- yes, like when Cliff Richard did a uh, blind uh, uh, wine tasting and failed to identify his own wine <laughs> and confused it with a uh, a four ninety nine Tesco wine. <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> first mention of cliff richard on the tennis podcast for a few years um, i was gonna say david <laughs> what you didn't say happened in 2012 was that the tennis podcast started oh you're right that's right we're, ne- we're, nearly, we're nearly eight years old folks end of this month we'll be going into our ninth year of production and Catherine's still just about talking to me <laughs> so um intimacy going all right yeah, intermittently. You know, once a week. That's all we do twice a week now for the podcast. That's all we need. The rest of the time, it's lots of angry emojis. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. 
Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. 2014, roll on a couple of years. And uh, also staying in Madrid, no longer blue clay, back to the red stuff. Uh, We're going to focus on Maria Sharapova against Simona Halep in the final, which was won by Sharapova, 1-6-6-2-6-3. In 2014, the World Cup was being held in Brazil, uh, won by Germany. And a man outside of the Big Five won a Grand Slam title for the first time in five years. Mr. Marin Cilic uh, of the US Open. Um, Except that the, you've just casually said the Big Five there as if that was a, yeah. a thing. It was. They was com- it? had a total domination but of it. Gorinka no, won his f- first slam in 2014. Yeah. So, well, he went on... To win three of yeah, them. Yeah, but he wasn't part of the big five yet because otherwise Chilich would have made it a big six by a winning six, the US yeah. Open. <laughs> Don't <laughs> start messing up my intro, you two. <laughs> right. Savannah okay, Halep, I think we can all agree it was never a big six. <laughs> no, no, we can agree on that. That's fine. Uh, so so what, what interested me watching that match back was it felt like, felt like a clash of generations in that Halep on the court, played and looked the same as she does now. Six years on, she doesn't look any different. She looks as though she belongs. And yet I didn't I didn't realise how kind of big a deal that final was in her career, how early on it was still in her career. It was her biggest final to date, wasn't it, Matt? Yeah, it was her first Premier, premier Mandatory final. She'd broken into the top 10 a few months earlier that year. Uh, reached her first quarterfinal in Australia, but she was very much on the rise. A year earlier in Madrid, she needed a wild card to get into the tournament. Um, so yeah, I kind of felt the same. I when I think of Halep reaching the Roland Garros final in 2014, as she did a month after this, I think that she was kind of already been a bit of a dominant force in the game. But that that really wasn't the case. That was a bit of a breakthrough run to the final she had there. Um, and it was diff- it was interesting, as you said, clash of generations. How much more presence on the court Maria Sharapova had than Simona Halep? You know, if they had played a couple of years ago, that would have been reversed, and that's what is most fresh in my mind. So to go back and to to see that dynamic of intensity the other way round, and Sharapova being the presence, the force on the court was interesting. It's just so it's just so difficult to watch Sharapova not through the lens of everything that we know happened in her career after that, but to but to go back and watch that match trying to detach yourself from that, you do see what made her so good. I think there was a there was a period in that third set where I think Sam Smith was on the commentary and she just said that she's sort of made that happen how she wanted it to happen when she broke Halep's serve. She she used her willpower to turn the match around and in in her favour, and that is what she used to do in those in those big matches. But she really did lose that through the last four or five years of her career. Mm. Yeah, she shrunk the court. It seemed to me against Halep, she looked so tall. So I mean, she is tall, but she her presence was was enormous on that court, and it made me realise. Remember how how good Serena Williams 
must have been to keep her at bay all these years and and just stop her beating her at all we'll, we'll talk about them as a, a pair and and what Sharapova went on to do and obviously the the years that Matt's talked about more recently in, in a moment or two but let's let's hear from her coach at the time Sven Gruneveld who joined the Sharapova camp at the end of the previous year 2013 she'd already won the French Open once by then but Sven joined that team and very quickly understood that clay court tennis was a big deal you know, going into the clay court season specifically, she was, you know, really set up um, at a clay court, uh, which was prepared at a private home that we could use. And we totally changed our um, routines. We basically, you know, uh, drove up to this uh, facility or a house, private house. And, you know, we did everything basically just to get her ready for the clay um, I think one of the things that that really set her apart from many players is just that she she was um, understanding what her weakness was and willing to work on that and needed to address those issues uh, specifically on clay. And she knew that she had to get more hours on the clay, and she couldn't just you know walk on and 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 expect to perform on the clay as she you know she had kind of a uh, yeah, a poor attitude maybe in the beginning of her career towards clay because she never really played on it. And I think uh, Huxted did a phenomenal job into transitioning in, in uh, her into a clay court player. And that's basically, you know, that's more also about her attitude towards playing on clay. It's not only the the, the small adjust, adjustments, whether it's sliding, whether it's uh, adapting her type of, uh, type of game, but um, she could hit through the clay. Um, and many players um, during this phase in her career where very few could hit through the clay, meaning that she still could get winners. She could still extend the rally, but you felt that the other players could not hit winners on her. Mm. Because you you mentioned her attitude. I remember her making jokes about at her own expense about her inability to move that well on it early on in her career. I think she called herself sort of a Bambi on ice in terms yeah. of the way she felt out there. Did, was there a moment, I remember Richard Krychek on grass saying that, that one year, the year he won it, it just clicked. And I wonder, did it just click for Maria or do you think it was a gradual process? Um. No, I think it's very similar to to the other players when they when when it does click. You, it's almost like a puzzle, you know. It's like one of those things that you just know that um, a certain type of uh, constructing of the points and what to expect and what not to expect and what to adapt. So all of a sudden, you um, in the beginning she was maybe fighting so many things in her mind, and at one stage, yes, there is a click, and then the mind gets out of the way and allows the player just to play the game as they have now adapted to, which is the best way to play is that you actually don't have to think. And uh, we tend to overthink when we struggle with um, a, a surface or a, 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 an opponent. Um, unfortunately, she never could adapt that um, to Serena, uh, but uh, to Clay, she did. Mm. I remember when she faced Simona Halep in that Madrid final in, in 2014. That was the first of the two huge matches she had in the space of a few weeks. And, and you've got a player in 
in Halop, who who looks as if she was born on the surface by comparison. It's and yet physically, there's such a difference between them. It it was quite a tantalising proposition. What was it like to coach against Simona Halep? What were what were the messages? Uh, I mean, primarily, um, you know, Simona could not hit a winner and still is to this day very um, limited in how much power she can generate. And knowing that, that you're uh, playing an opponent that is not able to hit winners, it will depend on your own personal errors that that can maybe cause you the match. Uh, However, you will always get a chance against... um, Simona, a shorter ball or a moment where you can actually put the pressure on her and especially on that second serve, which you would get every time a chance to break her. Um, Now, obviously, then it comes on to your own service. How can you hold and make sure that percentage of those serves were very high? And she was able to get above her shoulders with some some, good kicks. And um, obviously, Simona, one of the best movers on, on on the tour uh, to to this day and you know how she has adapted her game even you know winning Wimbledon against Serena you know phenomenal I think in 2014 she was still going into that transition from being an average player to an excellent player Um, even though she was highly ranked I still felt that she had some holes in her in her uh, weaponry and Maria had to had the strength and the power to to you know physically outperform her um, with her with her weapons and um, and that's when Maria steps on a court and she has this uh, belief and 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 commitment to be willing to stay out there because she knows she is stronger than her opponents she she will and and that's what makes her so such a fierce competitor those two matches obviously both very close is it is it a very different surface? playing in Madrid to to playing in Roland Garros? Um, Generally, uh, yes, because Madrid, it seems like there has to be, you know, there's a little bit of altitude. So the ball travels a little bit faster in the air. The court actually over the years have have improved and and they were harder, uh, just like uh, at the French. Sometimes in, in Paris, it can be quite slow and it can be quite sticky. And and you will have to work your your way through it um, because the, the the rallies are extended a little bit longer than on, on on Madrid. I don't have the stats on that, but I wouldn't be surprised if you would look into that. That actually the rally length um, in in Madrid compared to Paris, maybe uh, Madrid is a bit shorter. Mm, yeah, and and so when you got there, when you got to. To play, she played in the final in Madrid, and then had that run in Paris, where she just had that succession of matches coming from a set down. Did did you feel it coming that 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 this that she would end up on top of it all, or how did you feel? Uh, listen, I mean, she, you know, she won before Madrid. She won Stuttgart. She won the Porsche Grand Prix, um, and and we had kind of a. An, a decent start leading into the clay court season. Not really great, but we're just, you know, warming up to it. But we just had a really, really good preparation. And you saw her just feeling really comfortable. And 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 obviously, for her to win Stuttgart, um, it, it just gave her such a boost of confidence. And she was playing with so much confidence into, into Madrid. Uh, 
that was then taken on. But she got sick, and she she um, she you know in in Rome um, she played, but she was she was you know not playing her best because she got sick and it had a cold. And and actually leading into Paris, she 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 was battling this this cold all the way through the preparation. So I didn't expect honestly much, but. As the the tournament progressed, she, you know, that first week she, you know, she came through quite decently, and then obviously those matches back to back where she just had to battle through uh, Muguruza, um, I believe Stoser as well, um, and one more um, that were t- tough matches, um, but that gave her the confidence that she, you know, she was able to maintain her her type of game plan even though she lost that those first sets she kind of that gave her that little bit of a boost in like morale that she is so strong i mean mentally she is just so strong when it comes comes to those moments and uh she will not just hand you the the match no chance that that was her final grand slam title she described it afterwards as the one that meant the most to her in a way i, I imagine because it was so hard fought and, and she'd had to go through a lot i mean it was a she was on the brink of victory at one point in the second set and, and halep won that second set at yeah what what were your impressions watching watching the match was it going how you had hoped it would in terms of the the style <laughs> of tennis she was playing well, I, I, I really um, didn't. Honest, honestly, I, I, you know, when you're when you're sitting there and you see a player that is in in control of a match, and you see them uh, lose that second match or second the second set, um, you're really, you know, you're questioning: Is she able to to come out on top because she had such a tough matches leading into the final? Um, and and again, this was this was something that. Um, you know, we we always trained pretty hard. You know, I mean, when she steps on a court in practice, there's not one moment she just kind of you know lets up. So I know how deep she can go into practices, and you know, like two or three hours where we just really, really push hard. So I know she has that that um, in her system, but to be able to do it on the biggest stage and you know, again, to win that title, it just, she had to dig so deep that, um, yeah, that's something that I, as a coach, have no idea how she's able to do that. Mm. She obviously made her name by winning Wimbledon in 2004. And then she went on and she reached semi-final, semi-final at Wimbledon the next two years. In the years that she reached three Roland Garros finals in a row, winning two of them between 2012 and 2014, she didn't go beyond the fourth round at Wimbledon. I just wonder whether, was was there any damage done to her ability to compete at Wimbledon because she was doing so well at the French Open, maybe so programmed to do well because of all her training? What, what do you think? Because that, that has always seemed a bit of a surprise that she stopped getting as much success at Wimbledon. Yeah, I mean, again, I think maybe there are two elements to it. Um, one of the elements is obviously, you know, she's she is um, fatigued at, at when you are going through such a tough uh, clay court season and you have so many wins um, over a period of of a month, and the preparation is almost a two month period. Um, you're fatigued, and and on 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 the grass, 
the players, your opponents, do have an ability to, for, you know, force you into more errors and actually get more winners on you, um, and that that takes its toll um, on on your on your not only you know physique uh, but also mentally, uh, and for sure, I mean, I I think. You know, coming from clay, now that we have three weeks between Roland Garros and Wimbledon um, in a normal season, I think this will help in the future. But, you know, when she was playing, it was only two weeks. And to be able to to make that adjustment was very, very hard. Mm. Yeah, no, I can understand that. Just as a, as a final thought on her, do you feel like, what what was it that made her dig in and want to conquer Clay the way she did? Because her career was going just fine as it was. If you look at the fact that she'd won Wimbledon, she'd won the US Open, she'd won the Australian Open by 2008. And suddenly it, it's, I mean, do, do you think that there was a conscious thought in her head that I, I'm going to find a way here to conquer this surface as well? Yes, this totally, totally conscious thought. I mean, she... Knowing her and and knowing Yuri and knowing their path and knowing their commitment to her career and having a career slam, winning all the slams was definitely part of her path. And definitely she, you know, she's a girl that if you tell her you can't do something, obviously then she will prove you wrong. Um, and that that type of mentality, she she put herself into the position and said, "Okay, I'm going to conquer Clay. I'm going to make this happen because I want to achieve um, something special that very few players have achieved before me, which is a you know a career slam." And um, and totally, I mean, she she committed to it, and um, that's something that she can be very proud of. I mean, I I have to admit, she uh, she put herself through a lot to get there. So there's Sven Grunewald, the man who guided the, the last few years of Maria Sharapova's career, and, and she won that French Open, as, as he talks about there. And I found that turnaround in her career, Catherine, one of the probably the most interesting elements of the positives in her career. Because, yes, bursting on the scene in 2004 was, was exciting. She did well to win the hardcourt Grand Slams, but I would have always expected her to. But I, I would not have expected her to win more slams on clay than she did anywhere else. No, I mean, I wouldn't have expected her to win any, I don't think, um, let alone two of them. Uh, it's, it's, you know, my feelings about kind of the, the cloud that what ended up uh, happening or being exposed sort of casts upon her her career for me. But it's, is nonetheless an extraordinary mental triumph and triumph of of determination that she made herself a Roland Garros champion and a two-time Roland Garros champion. She only ever lost two clay court finals and they were both to Serena Williams. Serena Williams is the only person that ever beat her in a clay court final. I think she won nine uh, clay court titles. Oh, yeah, nine clay court titles. Um and it's amazing how many players, in spite of kind of the template that she created and the and the the kind of inspiration that she could be in in that regard, how many players are still pretty defeatist and fatalistic about their prospects on clay? Um, Caroline Wozniacki, obviously she's now retired, but 
and Angelique Kerber are the ones that spring spring to mind. Okay, they don't feel that natural moving on the surface, but game wise, I feel like they they you know if they really committed to it and 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 made that an ambition. Um, then I don't see why they couldn't achieve it in in exactly the same way Sharapova did. I'm surprised it's not a massive goal for Angelique Kerber or hasn't been for the last two or three years. I mean, the way she talks about the French Open is that she she feels like she she hasn't got a hope. Um, and Caroline Wozniacki used to be pretty similar. Um, so it, it's amazing that she made herself a, a clay court Grand Slam champion. And I think that drive to do it is the key, as Sven Gunnavell was saying, because it's amazing how quickly something can go from looking like it will never work to suddenly seeming obvious. I remember that having that feeling with Joe Conta last year on the clay. All these years, it, it seemed so unnatural. But then she just slightly sorted out her movement, and we saw what she did. She got to the final in Rome, she got to the semifinals at Roland Garros, and suddenly you're thinking, well, yes, of course she can play on clay. She's got a big serve. She's got a big forehand. That works on any surface. I think kind of to use a, I don't know, to use a lockdown analogy, perhaps. It's like a, it's like doing a jigsaw. Oh, yes. If you're trying to force two pieces, if you're trying to force them to fit together when they don't go together, it's not going to work. You can, you can force it and you might get them to fit together awkwardly, but ultimately that is going to not be satisfactory it's only going to be temporary and you're not going to be able to complete the jigsaw if you're forcing them together but if you as Sven Grunewald said allow your mind to get out the way and make a change be willing to make a change in a jigsaw terms you just swap the pieces around you get the piece that fits but in Sharapova it was having that determination finding that missing ingredient which was the, the determination to do it and then she realized actually I do have a game that works on this surface and it paid off with three Roland Garros finals in a row and a whole host of other successes on clay, as you've mentioned. It it doesn't have to be impossible to make that change. And I do think a lot of players, as you said, Catherine, think that it is. But if you've got the tools, the surfaces are different but close enough, I think, that you that you can play on, on all of them. I mean, there are so many examples, despite there being a lot of examples of people who have been surface specialists. There are also so many examples of ones who have overcome it. Mm. I love Sven Grunewald's um, quite dismissive line about Halep just not being able to hit any winners at all. Mm. That was really interesting. I mean, obviously, yeah, she's a far more defensive player than Maria Sharapova and even is still now. Um, I still think that was a... He was probably, you know, be exaggerating a little for effect. Um, Maybe that's where she's changed, though. But absolutely, it yeah. feels like now we've talked. We've talked about it. I think probably on the podcast that Halep is one of our favourite players to watch because you can get a good match against anybody of any style. She can play counter puncher or she can play dominator, depending on what she is up against, and. Uh, it really depends on a mind. If a mind and a body are, are willing, then she can adapt. Uh, but back then, I think she was, I think mentally, she was a little bit sheepish almost out there on the final stage against Maria Sharapova. She's a little bit shy. She doesn't have great pride in herself as a 
as a, a colossus of the tennis court. I think she had pride in having got there, but there was no expectation that she should then take it and that, that that should be the way things turn out. I don't think she feels like that anymore. And she said in the on-court ceremony afterwards, I'm not sad that I lost. I'm sad that the week's over. Yeah. <laughs> which kind of, great, great which kind of just perfectly summarises her mindset in 2014. It was It was all about getting the experiences and having fun out on the court, but what she needed to turn herself into a champion came a little bit later, I think. Amazing how much her... English has improved mm. since then as well. That was when she was um, teaching herself English by reading Harry Potter, which was, I mean, yeah, one of the most charming episodes in the getting to know Simona Halep process of, of 2014, <laughs> as I remember. Yeah, and the the cloud to which you refer, Catherine, is is a source of sadness for me watching that match back because of... It was so easy back then to just watch Sharp over as a competitor and not think, is she being helped by something outside of just normal training, etc. Now, at the time, the, the substance she, that she was taking was perfectly legal and, and was on the, the accepted list. It then went off the list. She tested positive for it and got caught. But that element of it, yeah, it, it does make you just watch the match slightly differently. Yeah, I mean, at the, the, at the time that uh, she was banned, she had the best deciding set record <clears throat> on tour. You know, she, she, and, and part of that will have been down to her mentality, her competitive grit, all the rest of it. We'll never know how much of that was down to Meldonium. And, and if it were down to Meldonium, as you say, that weren't on, on that wasn't on the band list at the time. But the fact that you have to have all these thought process that thought processes, regardless of where you end up at the end of the thought processes, that is the cloud in itself, isn't it? Because those are the mm. things you don't want to be thinking about. She did have this uh, unparalleled third set record and one that that wasn't replicated when she she returned to the tour after her ban. In in that week alone, I think she I mean she was uh one four down in the third set um of her second round match against Christina McHale came back to win. Um she was a set and a breakdown to Lee Nara in the quarterfinals came back to win. Obviously a set down in the in the final as well. So we will never know. Yeah. And that's the problem, isn't it? That you will always turn it over in your mind. It's like never knowing whether Adnan Syed did it keeps me up mm. at night. Yeah. Um, just to say as well, if if anybody listening to this wants to go and relive one of the matches that we've been talking about, I, I would actually suggest you watch the French Open final between Sharapova and Halep from a couple of weeks later because the, the, there's great highlights of that on the Roland Garros Um YouTube channel and it's just got everything that match in terms of twists and turns and drama and just great shot making as well it really is a corker of a final yeah one of my absolute favorite Grand Slam finals that one so so good mm. and we will be doing lots more reliving over the next uh, weeks and months here on the tennis podcast we've got daily editions of this during the French Open and Wimbledon we've been doing some big interviews in the last week 
<laughs> losing count the amount of interviews we've done, uh, which is uh, which is great, and we'll have all sorts of voices to bring you on those shows to to bring them to life, as well as us watching them and you hopefully joining us to watch them and all of our reflections we'll be talking to people that were were there at the time people that were part of the camps sometimes players themselves and uh, and hopefully really i don't know just just going places we couldn't normally go if tennis was on live so let's take that little uh, silver lining to this massive great behemoth of a cloud that is over us at the moment uh right catherine matt anything else I can offer you shout-outs. That'll do me. To Sam Tan. To Hello, Sam. Isabel Cantin. Hello, Isabel. And to Ailey Nicholson. Hayley, h- hello, Ailey. Hello. Hooray. Awesome, awesome shout-outs for awesome people who've backed the Tennis Podcast this year. Uh, we couldn't do it without you. So thank you so much for your support. Um, and, yeah, we will be back. I don't know when we'll be back. Will we be back on Thursday? That's the big question. Can I can I squeeze in another podcast? What do we think? I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> Seems to have become a thing now, doesn't it? Yeah, you've somehow managed that, David. Sort of sleight of hand, sleight of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> the listeners are behind me. <laughs> they don't care. They're, they're up for it. So we've got to think of something. Uh, not a problem. We will do. Uh, thank you for listening to us here on the Tennis Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, go and leave us a review on iTunes. Tell everybody you know, whether they're on their hour-long exercise every day or whatever it is, although you, apparently you can go for longer and further now, so you can listen to more episodes of the Tennis Podcast, hence why we need to pr- produce even more of them. Um, if you know anybody that likes tennis at all, just get them to listen to us, all right? Uh, get them to join the Reddit community, which is a an online website where people have conversations, social media, <laughs> something like that. I don't really know too much about it, but apparently it's really good. Uh, and we will be back with another edition next week and on Thursday and every week and twice a week and daily at the Slams. And we'll see you next week. 